Good morning, church family. Good morning. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning. Um, I'm excited about the word that the Lord has for us today. Um, let me, should have marked it, um, but I didn't. If you guys will turn with me to Luke chapter 5, I'll read the text for us this morning. It's verses 12 through 16. This is from the Legacy Standard. And it happened that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he directed him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away to the desolate regions and pray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to come this morning and worship you. Uh, we give great thanks to you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Truly is the hope of the ages. He is David's true son. God, let us see um, who he is truly and magnificently this morning. Lord, as we, as we hear your word, I pray that we will not harden our hearts, Amen. that you'll, you'll make them soft, that you'll make our ears open and our hearts receptive. And God, I pray that this word um, would accomplish exactly what you sent it forth to do, mm -hmm. and that is quicken us to life so that we may worship the one true Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, be seated. This is not a story about the downtrodden among us, the outcasts, the victims who find themselves at the fringes of society. It's also not a story that is primarily about the power of Jesus over disease or another Sunday school story about his healing ministry. This certainly is an, an example of how we are supposed to model our ministries to AIDS-ravaged communities in sub-Saharan Africa. Yes, that is a real ministry claiming this passage as its example. What we have before us today is an unmistakable gospel story. This morning, we are going to study a passage of scripture which will cause us to look squarely at the nature of sin and the necessity of faith in the Lord Jesus as the only means of salvation. I think it'll be helpful this morning if we break it up into three sections. For those of you who like to take notes, section one is going to be the leper's request and the Lord's response. Section two is going to be the Lord's instruction. And section three, the Lord's retreat. I'll run through those one more time. Section one, the leper's request and the Lord's response. Section two, the Lord's instruction. And finally, the Lord's retreat. 
Now, before we get too deep into the text, let's do a brief but important look at leprosy and its effects. We typically think of leprosy as a highly contagious skin condition, which mars the complexion and causes the infected to be ostracized from society, as 100% accurate. However, it doesn't paint the full picture. In addition to the telltale sores that would dominate the appearance of the diseased, the condition is also one that attacks the nervous system, and over time it causes desensitization to pain, as well as the shriveling and wasting away of infected limbs and digits. In fact, eventually, entire limbs might simply fall off. The damage to the central nervous system is so extensive that in time, the sick man would lose all ability to feel pain. Now, I'm thinking of my son Caleb specifically here, but some of you young boys might be thinking to yourself how awesome that sounds. No more pain. Or even some of the adults who deal with chronic forms of pain might find that appealing for just a moment until you begin to think about some of the consequences of the condition. All right, let's do a thought experiment real quick. Everybody take just a moment and imagine putting your hand squarely on a red-hot stove eye. What's the reaction? Why? Pain. Instantaneous recoil. You guys are smart. Uh, so how cool would it look if somebody climbed to the pinnacle of the church, did a couple backflips as they made their way to the ground? Personally, I think that would look pretty sweet. Probably not the only one. So what prevents some of the young men and boys from trying it? Again, the certainty of pain. So severe burns, broken bones, infected cuts, on and on the list could go. The loss of sensitivity to pain is so severe that some leprosy sufferers have had fingers gnawed off by rats in their sleep and had no idea it was even happening. Now that's bad, full stop, but it's not everything. In addition to the debilitating physical deformities, the disease carried with it the requirement that the sick people be put outside the camp or outside the city. They were forbidden from interacting with the general population. Last week, Chris made a joke about how no one thought to enact a six-foot social distancing standard in biblical times. Well, according to Jewish custom, it was, in fact, required that any clean person had to stay six feet away from a leper. (laughs) See, social distancing is a biblical principle by which (laughs) you can effectively love your neighbor. (laughs) Thank you, Matthew. I love it. Anytime a leper happened to be near a clean person, they were required to shout, unclean, unclean, or wear a bell around their neck in order to warn of their presence. Other than coming in contact with a dead body, there was nothing an ancient Israelite could do that would be more defiling than touching a leper. Bible commentator William Barclay describes it as a terrible, progressive death in which a man died by inches. This living death led to a custom in the Middle Ages where the priest would actually bring the leper into the church and read the burial service over the living man. For all intents and purposes, the man was already dead. 
Before we move on, I want to make one obvious connection explicit. This is a real, genuine, historical account of the Lord's interaction with the diseased leper. However, that doesn't mean that the historical reality is all that we are meant to see here. These truths about leprosy and its effects ought to call to our minds a very real, very stark, and very accurate view of the effects of sin in general and the death it brings to all mankind. Like leprosy, sin causes desensitization. Liars who have been seared in their own conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2. They both cause rottenness. Psalm 38.5 says, My wounds stink and rot because of my folly. And Ezekiel 24.23 states, You will rot away in your iniquities. And ultimately, sin leads to death. As Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. We even experience the same kind of living death the lepers did. In fact, we are born into this state of death. David writes, and it's true of each of us, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Our spiritual condition before we meet Christ is the same as the leper's physical condition before he meets Christ. J.C. Ryle states it well. What are we all but lepers spiritually in the sight of God? Sin is the deadly sickness by which we are all affected. It has eaten into our constitution. It has infected all our faculties. Heart, conscience, mind, and will. All are diseased by sin. From the sole of our foot to the crown of our head, there is no soundness about us, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, Isaiah 1.6. Such is the state in which we naturally live. We are in one sense dead long before we are laid in the grave. Our bodies may be healthy and active, but our souls are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. All right, let's dive in and explore this first section, the leper's request and the Lord's response. 12 and 13 read, And it happened that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. The first thing I want to draw attention to is the word that is translated covered here in the Legacy Standard Bible. The Greek word is P-L-E-R-E-S, pronounced play race. It's an adjective meaning full or filled up, or covered in every part, or thoroughly permeated with. It can also be uh, translated as complete or lacking nothing. Most English translations use the word full, uh, with covered being the second most popular rendering. And those translations are fine, those are good. But the Christian Standard Bible gives probably the most complete picture of the situation. It reads, a man who had leprosy all over him. Uh, this word, play race, can be found in Luke um, 4, verse 1, which reads, Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. 
And in Acts chapter 7, it's used to describe Stephen as he's being stoned to death. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. And again in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The leper was as sick with leprosy as Jesus was exalted in glory. It would be hard to imagine a more miserable man. Now we're told that when Jesus that when he saw Jesus he fell on his face and begged. The mere fact that this man approached would have been shocking to those present and also to early readers of the text. <clears throat> and as we've already talked extensively of the effects of leprosy, I hope we can begin to appreciate why that was the case. But let's leave no doubt and really drive it home. Uh, I'm going to share an analogy that Definitely breaks down, so don't push it all the way to the edges. Uh, But let's imagine that Britain's King Charles is on a state visit to California. And while walking through downtown San Francisco, he is approached by a raggedy homeless man who just left a vile present on the courthouse steps. He throws himself at the feet of the king and begs for a loaf of bread. Our expectation is, is that the king will instinctively recoil... And in reality, he certainly would. However, in our example, the king doesn't draw back in horror or disgust. The security detail doesn't intervene and drag the man away. The king doesn't even politely refuse the the request. Instead, he reaches out his hand, tenderly touches the man, and graciously fulfills the request for something to eat. That's a picture of the shocking interaction I think we're meant to see in our text. In it, we see a man, a complete and total outcast, who shouldn't have even been near the general population. He's alone and completely hopeless in the world, and he is waiting for death. What difference would the reality of death make anyway? He's already living in its shadow. He throws himself down at the feet of the king. And up to this point in the book, Luke has made it clear that Jesus possessed a genuine authority that was evident to those around him. And I believe that played a part in the sick man's behavior. He needed no convincing that Jesus could heal him. Of this, there was absolutely no doubt. We were discussing this passage a couple weeks ago in family worship, and Caleb thoughtfully remarked that the leper may be thought oh, I bet that man can heal me, right? And so it's that childlike, just looking at Jesus, uh, perceiving real authority that caused this man to do what he did. There's not even the slightest hint in the text that the leper doubts Jesus' ability. He is certain that he can heal him. Let's note that he doesn't bother to ask if he is able. He doesn't negotiate for healing. There's not even any if-then proposition offered. If you'll do this for me, Lord, then I'll never do whatever again, right? He simply prostrates himself before the king of all creation and begs for the healing to be accomplished for him. Recognizing that if Jesus doesn't act, he will remain hopeless and destitute. What a picture of faith. 
as shocking as the request would have been, the response of Jesus would have been absolutely dumbfounding for those in attendance. I even imagine an audible gasp followed by an even louder one. I think about a CTK church volleyball game where one incredible shot is followed by another more incredible, more unlikely one. And the crowd goes, (gasps) right? In the analogy I used earlier, that visceral kind of response that you expect from King Charles when approached by the beggar is exactly what the gathered crowd would have expected from the Lord Jesus. But of course, like in so many other instances, Jesus doesn't do what we expect. He responds simply. He says, I am willing. Be cleansed. And then he stretches out his hand and touches the man, and immediately the leprosy leaves him. It's just gone. It vanishes instantly. He falls on the ground as a miserable, filthy wretch and rises to his feet clean. No more angry red sores, no more shriveled arms and legs, maybe fingers that have fallen off or been eaten off regrow, and suddenly standing before them is a whole man. I don't know about you, but I can almost hear the sharp intake of breath from the watching audience once again. What a remarkable scene. They watched a man literally pass from death to life before their very eyes. Hallelujah, what a savior. In Mark's recounting of the same story, we gain a bit of insight into our Lord's motivation. We're told that Jesus was moved with compassion and then stretched out his hand and touched the man. The word for compassion used in Mark's gospel is the exact same word that the Lord Jesus used in the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's recorded for us in Matthew 18. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Therefore the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. Aren't those similarities striking? Unpayable debt, incurable disease. Prostrate before the lowercase lord, Prostrate before the uppercase Lord. In one we have the man begging for forbearance, and in the other we have the leper begging for cleansing. We have the lowercase Lord moved with compassion, and the uppercase Lord Jesus moved with compassion. We have a debt fully forgiven and freedom to return to society restored. And in the other we have cleansing granted and freedom to return to society restored. In one of these texts, we hear the Lord Jesus Christ teaching about his posture toward destitute beggars. And in the other one, we see the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrating his posture towards destitute beggars. I want to speak to those who may be here this morning who have yet to trust Christ. The diseased man is a picture of you. You have leprosy of the soul. You are unclean in the sight of God, and furthermore, just like the leper, have no ability to remedy any of this on your own. 
but you are not without hope. His behavior is a model of what is required of you. And just like the leper, if you will come to the end of your own striving, place all your hope for cleansing in the only one who can truly cleanse you, then you will be saved. 1 John 1, 9, 1 verse 9 assures us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ is the cure, and this faith in him is the manner in which we obtain cleansing. This is the only means of grace that we, that we have for the forgiveness of sins, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. He suffered the punishment that we deserve and then rose again on the third day to demonstrate that God the Father had accepted his sacrifice as full payment for all those who would call on him. Stop trying to come any other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. Many people live their lives trying to do just a little bit more good than bad, thinking that will tip the scales in their favor when they stand before God, and he'll be forced to let them into um, his rest because they are good people. Well, don't you see? That's like a leper washing with soap and water and then declaring themselves clean. It simply doesn't work. In fact, it can't work that way. Please, can't you see the impossibility of such a thing? Put down the soap and fall on your face before the Lord Jesus, who assured you of his heart of compassion to just such a one as yourself. In John's gospel, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Hear these beautiful words of comfort. Who shall deliver us from this body of death? Let us thank God that Jesus Christ can. He is, the, he is that divine physician who can make old things pass away and all things become new. In him is life. He can wash us thoroughly from all the defilement of sin in his own blood. He can quicken us and revive us by his own spirit. He can cleanse our hearts open the eyes of our understandings, renew our wills, and make us whole. Let that sink down deeply into our hearts. There is medicine to heal our sickness. If we are lost, it is not because we cannot be saved. However corrupt our hearts and however wicked our past lives, there is hope for us in the gospel. There is no case of spiritual leprosy too hard for Christ. J.C. Ryle again. Amen and amen. All right, let's move forward in the text. Next, we'll examine section two. The Lord's instruction to the new, to the new man is recorded in verse 14. And he directed him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus' initial charge to the man is a common one that he employs. 
In several instances, it is recorded that Jesus commands complete silence regarding a miracle or restricts, as is the case in our text, who may be told. A number of reasons have been offered as to why this is the case. Um, A couple weeks ago, Chris gave a compelling answer as to why a demon was commanded to be silent, and I believe he's absolutely correct. However, this is a different situation. In this case, we see a man who exhibited great faith in the Lord's ability to make him clean, given exactly what he requested from Jesus. Everyone's amazed, and generally speaking, a great time is had by all. Why would Jesus tell that guy to be quiet? I think that Jesus is trying to prevent exactly what we see occurring in the next verse, where we read, But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Back in chapter 4, verse 37, we were told that the report about him was spreading. And so when we read here in verse 15 that the news about him was spreading even farther, that is what is being referenced. Interestingly, though, Luke uses different words to describe exactly what was making its way around about Jesus. The word for report from chapter 4 is spelled E-C-H-O-S. This is obviously where the word echoes comes from, and they carry the same meaning. Chris said that it wasn't necessarily a news report about Jesus that was spreading, but rather his fame was spreading. So rumors about his miracle ministry were making their rounds and causing quite the stir in the Judean countryside. But what we have here in chapter 5 is the word logos. Strong's defines logos as something said, discussed, reasoned, computed. It includes discourse about a thing, motive, computation. In John's gospel, this is the same word that is translated capital W, word, referring to Christ, where it says, and the word became flesh. So here's the idea. Back then, there were some echoes and rumors about what Jesus was doing, and it gave him some notoriety. But now, news about his message and and beyond speculation about who he truly is are spreading And he's getting even more famous. And furthermore, the fame is increasing no longer because of mere rumors, but because of more easily substantiated facts. And Jesus' fame has grown in no small part due to the healed man's lack of compliance to the Lord's command. A quick look over at Mark's gospel gives us a bit more insight. But when he went out... But he went out and began to proclaim it freely. So Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news, logos again, around, to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in desolate areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. The man just couldn't help himself. And the result of such loud and open discourse seems to have had a drastic impact on the ministry of Christ. The Lord certainly knew this would be the case, and I believe attempted to limit those effects with his charge to the man. But Jesus doesn't tell him to keep it entirely silent. There was one place where Jesus wanted word of the miracle to be shared. 
He commanded the man to go to the priest and to make the offering for his cleansing that Moses required in the law. We'll look briefly at the offering and ceremony required for the healing of the leper, and the gospel themes will come rushing to the forefront. Leviticus Leviticus chapter 14 lays out the process by which a physically cleansed leper may be made ceremonially clean and therefore return to full participation and citizenship with the people of God. That cleansing ceremony took a week to perform and required two live clean birds. It was required that one of the birds be sacrificed over an earthenware vessel that contained quite literally living water. It's usually translated running water, but the literal meaning is living water. The priest then had to dip cedar wood, scarlet string, a hyssop branch, and the remaining live bird into the mixture of blood and living water. The hyssop branch was then used to sprinkle the person, the cleansed leper, seven times with the mixture, and the live bird was to be set free over an open field. The scape bird, if you will, was allowed to go free, and the man was declared clean. On the seventh day of this ritual, he had to shave off all his hair and beard and wash himself and his clothing in water, and then he was free to enter the camp. Can you imagine? How, how many years has he been outside the camp, right? Now he's able to enter the camp. On the following day, the eighth, it was required that he make an offering of two lambs, or if he were a poor man, one lamb and two birds, either doves or pigeons. Beginning in verse 11 of Leviticus 14, we read, And the priest who pronounces him clean shall present the man to be cleansed, as well as these things before Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Then the priest shall take the one male lamb and bring it near for a guilt offering with the log of oil and wave them as a wave offering before Yahweh. Next he shall slaughter the male lamb in the place where they slaughter the sin offering and the burnt offering at the place of the sanctuary for the, for the guilt offering like the sin offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. This ceremony is nearly a carbon copy of the one required on the Day of Atonement, the most holy day for the Jewish nation. We find instructions for that two chapters ahead in Leviticus 16. And he shall take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall bring near the goat on which the lot for Yahweh fell, and he shall offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement upon it, to send it out into the wilderness as the scapegoat. In that ritual sacrifice, the sins of the entire nation of Israel are ceremonially cleansed. But the reality was, however... That sin, that, that that sin could not be atoned for by the sacrifice of bulls and goats. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4. This ceremony on the Day of Atonement, like that of the leper's cleansing, is simply a picture. 
It's intended to point us to the one and only acceptable sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Hebrews 9, 12, and 15. All right, so here's the ceremony. Let's stick a little pin in that for just a moment and look back at Luke chapter 5. That ceremony that we just studied is what Jesus commanded of the leper. He said, go to the priest and do this. But why? Well, Jesus says that it was a testimony to them. Okay, but what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what I'm convinced that it means, and it's not insignificant. This testimony that he intends for the priests, and by implication the nation of Israel, is the ceremony itself. He says, go do the ceremony, and that ceremony is a testimony to them. To put it more directly, he's forcing them to look at the picture so that they'll recognize that the reality, the true substance, verified by the fruit of his ministry is in their midst. Hey, look at this picture, and guess what? The fulfillment of that picture is right here. It's me. He goes on to make that point explicitly clear in the text for next week when he demonstrates for the people that he has authority to forgive sins. This is a flashing neon billboard announcing to the nation that I am is in your midst. All those types and shadows, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the day of atonement, it's filled up in me. And don't miss this, brothers and sisters. If those types and shadows are meant as a testimony to the priests and to the nation of Israel as a whole, then you can be certain that it's meant as a testimony to us here this morning. In preparation for this sermon, I've been straining my eyes, if you will, to study the shadows of Christ contained here in these chapters of Leviticus. And as I have done so, I have come to see the light of Christ more clearly and his loveliness as all the more lovely. I am convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that when Christ commanded the cleansed leper to make the offerings Moses commanded, as a testimony to them that he intended us as part of the them. He knew that through our study of these ceremonial cleansing rituals that we would behold him more clearly as well and that we would recognize the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly and evidently as the true and sure fulfillment of the law. J.C. Ryle once again <clears throat> The ceremonies of the Mosaic Law were pictures and lively emblems of the gospel. They were not, therefore, to be lightly esteemed. There is a lesson here for Christians which we shall do well to remember. Let us take heed that we do not despise the ceremonial law because its work is done. Let us, be, let us beware of neglecting those parts of the Bible which contain it 
under the idea that the believer in the gospel has nothing to do with them. It is true that the darkness is past, and true light now shineth. We have nothing to do with altars, sacrifices, or priests. Those who wish to revive them are like men who light a candle at noonday. But true as this is, we must never forget that the ceremonial law is full of instruction. It contains that same gospel in the bud which we now see in full flower. Rightly understood, we shall always find it throwing strong light on the gospel of Christ. The Bible reader who neglects to study it will always find, at least by that, by the neglect his soul has suffered damage. All right, we're going to move on to the final section, the Lord's retreat in verse 16. But he himself would often slip away to the desolate regions and pray. Let's keep in mind the context in which Jesus is slipping away to pray. We looked at Mark's account of this miracle earlier, and he recorded for us that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city because of the crush of people wanting to see and hear him, and that people were coming to Jesus from everywhere. Next week, Chris is going to preach from a familiar passage where some folks want to get their friend, who is a paralytic, in front of Jesus to be healed. But the crowds are so thick around him that they have to take him on the roof and lower him through the ceiling. Needless to say, Jesus had no shortage of demand for his time. If he had been looking for an excuse to neglect prayer, he wouldn't have had to look very far. The practice of private prayer is obviously a consistent theme throughout the Lord's earthly ministry. Many examples can be found of his consistent prioritization of the discipline of personal prayer. In addition to verse 16 here, we have multiple examples of Jesus spending time in prayer, even prolonged times in prayer. Let's just take a quick survey of the book of Luke. In 6.12 we read, Now it happened that at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he was spending the whole night in prayer to God. Again in 9.28, now it happened some eight days after these words that taking along Peter and John and James, he went up on the mountain to pray. And 11 verse 1 says, and it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And, of course, we have the example of Christ as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane where he passes his dark night of the soul in intense prayer to the Father, all while imploring his disciples to do likewise. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of the times that the Lord separated himself from the crowds and sought the Father. Rather, it is a sampling of instances in which we find Christ doing something that was characteristic of his earthly life. He was constantly devoting himself to prayer. Okay, uh, just a quick aside, because I think it's going to be helpful and instructive for us at CTK. We find Jesus not only separating himself from the crowds, but also at times separating himself from his disciples, the ones closest to him in the world, to pray. These were the men with whom he shared his mission, 
He ate and drank and traveled and taught and sang and worshiped and, yes, prayed with them. My brothers and sisters, corporate spiritual activity and fellowship are no substitute for personal prayer and communion with the Father. If we're too busy doing good things of corporate spiritual activity, then we're too busy. We certainly can't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But we likewise must not forsake the assembling of ourselves alone with the Father. We do a lot of good and glorious things here, and I'm grateful to be a part of what God is doing at Christ the King. But our personal disciplines of prayer and study of the scriptures must not be laid aside, even for things as good as these. It's not either or, it's both and. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time or further dive into abundant exhortations and commands from the Lord regarding prayer or from Paul or Peter or any of the exhaustive extra-biblical resources that exist on the subject in order to make the point that we ought to pray. Of course we ought to pray, and each of us know that. If the Son of God needed to pass his earthly life in humble dependence on the Father, we certainly don't need less. Brothers and sisters, let us not neglect these ordinary means of sanctification and spiritual vigor. To be apathetic about such things or to let them fall by the wayside because we are too busy is foolish at best and at worst a prideful arrogance that pushes us to the fringes of the blessing of God. Lord, let it never be said of your people at Christ the King that we have left our first love. So what should we walk away with today? That we are great sinners and he is a great savior. The only thing we bring to the Lord is the filth from which we need to be cleansed. We are all born with leprosy of the soul, experiencing a living death that sears our consciences, desensitizes us to the consequences of sin, and puts us outside the camp. We deserve the suffering that our sin has brought, and if God had chosen to leave us in that state, he would be holy and blameless still. No one could bring a charge against him. We were rightly separated from a holy God and justly under his judgment. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. If we will humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus, the one who has the authority to forgive sin, and we will forsake our own striving, we will be received as the children of God and granted full membership into the fellowship of the saints. As Romans 10.13 reads, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he doesn't just forgive our sin, but along with Christ, he graciously gives us all things. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and makes us whole, a new creation. He saves to the uttermost. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. God, thank you for the picture that is represented here in your word. This real historical account points to a spiritual reality 
that is glorious and good. That if we'll humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace him, recognizing who he is, crying out to him for healing, he will not cast us out. He will deal with us mercifully. I pray, God, that, um, that you would soften our hearts today. Um, teach us what you want to teach us in your word. Accomplish that for which you sent your word forward this morning. I pray that hearts would be turned to you and that hearts would be strengthened and encouraged as they look to Christ, the gracious remedy for all of our sin. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.